0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org.
1: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Providence Community Church. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, I just want to welcome you. We're glad that you've chosen to gather with us this morning. Um, I hope that you felt welcomed as you walked through the door and um, got here this morning. Uh, My name is Lauren Schreiber and I serve at Providence as the director of our women's ministry and road academy. Um, And Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so um, if you guys have been here in the month of January, you know we are currently in a sermon series called Revival and Reformation. Um, As a body, a congregation, we have been um, doing a corporate fast together. And so as we're doing that, we are talking about what it would look like to desire, pray for a revival and reformation um, in the church. And so we're going to continue in that series this morning. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us all together. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the text, but you prefer to read from one, we do have Bibles around the room. So just look under the seats and grab one of those. Um, And again, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 3. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me? Uh, And we're going to read God's word together. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy yourself. Uh, like Lauren said, we're continuing our series on the topic of Reformation or Revival and Reformation today. Uh, and we've spent the last two weeks uh, laying some groundwork. First, sermon discussing the nature of revival. Uh, and then last week, Ty did a great job of discussing the central focal point of all revivals, namely the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus and, and uh, why that is. This morning, I want to make a little bit of a turn uh, and, and discuss maybe some uh, more specific uh, application points. And, and in particular, I want to talk about um, what does it mean for us uh, to ex- to experience or desire revival? What are we after? How do we accomplish it? Uh, and, and my primary topic is going to be uh, the topic of holiness, which I know that uh, when I say holiness, there's probably some uh, immediate images that come to your mind. And my prayer in particular is that some of those, not all of them, but some of them uh, would totally go away in light of what the scripture says about holiness and God's holiness. And so before we jump into the to the scriptures, I want to pray for us, ask the Lord to speak to us through his word um, and minister to us this morning. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that and then we'll jump into the passage. Father, we we're just so grateful that we have the privilege to come before your word, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand this morning. We confess to you that There is no one who has the words of life apart from you. We confess to you that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our needs. You know our desires, those that are aligned with yours and those that are askew. And so we do pray now, would you minister to us through your word? Speak to us as we have need of hearing. Open our ears, our hearts, that we might receive from you this morning. My God, we not only... Open ourselves for encouragement, we open ourselves for everything that you would have for us, that which you know we need, the help for the weak, the admonishment for the idle, even the rebuke that we may need, we know that it comes from a a loving Father, and so we open ourselves to you, that you might speak to us through the truth of your word, and in so doing, it might produce the 30, the 60, the 100-fold harvest that you've promised. We love you, my God, and we pray these things in Jesus' good name, amen. Amen. So a couple of sermons ago, uh, at the beginning of the year, I laid the groundwork for revival by defining or, or seeking to define what it is and how it transpires. You know, First, we said revival is God's coming near to his people in a unique way and calling them back to himself. We say that the promise of God in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is that Jesus will always be with us, never forsake us. And so we're not saying that, you know, in order for you to be sure of the presence of God in your life, you have to experience, you know, Pentecost-like revival, but that in the scriptures there are these moments where God comes near in a unique way. Uh, and when this happens, it's not that God does entirely different things, it's that he accelerates that work that he always does, that, that work of redemptive grace in the lives of the people that he visits, and that in so doing, he fulfills those self-same covenantal promises that he has given us and that he is fulfilling, but he does it in a a more rapid way. So we talked the first week about how if you've been a Christian for any length of time, sanctification often feels like, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. You know, you know, if you, after you've been a Christian for a while, you start feeling like, man, why have I been struggling with this same thing for, you know, longer than I ought, you know, maybe a couple of years, or start to, Really feel like you you nailed it, and you 're no longer, you fill in the blank, and then i don 't know you have your third kid, and you realize I am again this guy or this gal and 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 yet, over the plot graph of life of the Christians who have lived longer let 's say decades instead of days, you realize, oh God is informing me to his image. And 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 it's just I got to look at it over a larger span of time. Revival is this accelerated moment that kind of brings you back to your first love. And you guys know I'm talking about maybe many of you that moment when you first came to know Christ and nothing could derail you from like singing songs that you loathed like a week before. You know what I mean? Kind of like when you fell in love with your boyfriend or girlfriend the first time, and you know, no one had to tell you to call them on the phone. It's like no one had to tell you to pray when you first came to know Jesus. You're just were eagerly anticipatory of things like hearing the word of God preached and praying. And revival is like a return to that. Things just accelerate, and those things that were very difficult to fight against maybe before the Lord came near are now not so difficult. Now, last week, Ty did a great job of underscoring the central focal point of all revivals which is the justification of man before God by grace through faith in Jesus. Revival, in its essence, draws us to grapple with the most fundamental problem that we humans have, and that is, of course, sin. We have to deal with sin, because if God is going to come near, the thing that keeps us from the presence of God in this way is sin, and therefore we must grapple with how, to deal with the sin, and the gospel message, ready-made, answers it for us. In Christ's substitutionary atonement, we have been made righteous by him imputing his righteousness to us and taking our sin upon himself, and therefore, like last week time mentioned, we were like Joshua the high priest with filthy garments, and he reclothed us clean and righteous, made us just before God. And then, of course, it's not just sin we have to deal with, but time mentioned last week, we also have to deal with Satan who's constantly accusing us before the throne of God. And the gospel message of justification by faith tells us what Jesus did to Satan. He disarmed him, he ended his accusations. Romans 8 tells us, It is who can condemn? It is Christ who justifies. So, who can condemn you now? So, most importantly, If revival is a return to God, and if we must return through repentance, then it follows that Christ crucified must be at the center of the message of all revivals. Why? Because there's only one way of return, and it has a name. The Lord Jesus Christ is the way. And so, if we are to see revival, the message of justification by faith is that message because it is the way back to the Father's house. It's through Jesus. Christ crucified is the only means of return. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to venture a bit further down this line of logic. I want to ask this question. What is the result of embracing this gospel message? Not just embracing it uh, to preach it, but embracing it as the central focal point of our lives, that, that it's the canon or the measure by which we see our lives judge our lives as we keep the gospel at the center? What kind of life, or maybe a better way to put it might be, what kind of people does the cross of Christ create? The Bible calls this something specific, and I mentioned it already. The Bible calls it a holy people, holiness. Christ came to give us his righteousness by grace and to fill us with his spirit. So I want you to think of this the act and the gift of the Spirit has a ramification for us. God's not only calling us out of something, he calls us out of sin and guilt and shame and condemnation, but he also is calling us to something, into something. Holiness, confidence, courage, and conviction. So just real quick, I want to mention, let's, let's try to define holiness very simply. The Bible says, both Jesus and, for, and Peter tells us, That God's command is that we would be holy even as God is holy. Be holy even as Christ is holy. So holiness is a kind of imitation of God, his character, his nature. One way to think of it would be this. We want to, if we're pursuing holiness, we want to think the thoughts that God thinks after him. We want to feel or our affections need to be shaped in the manner in which God feels or is affected by things. Another way to put that would be, we want to love the things that God loves, hate the things that God hates. And then finally, we want to act or live in such a way that God would act or live. Now, the most simple example of this, and I'm giving you guys a lot of fundamentals. You're going to say, duh, Cord, I don't really need you to tell me this. But I'm going to do it anyway. When, when Paul, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or we say things like, I follow Jesus, this is what we mean. If we're supposed to think God's thoughts after him, feel God's affections in the way that he feels them, and act in the way that God would act, then all we have to do is look at the life of Jesus because he was God in the flesh and actually lived that way. And to imitate him, or as Paul says, hey, you guys imitate me while I imitate Jesus, would be to pursue holiness. Now, here's the rub. If you've read the Gospels, and if you've been self-reflective at all, and the first thing that should come to your mind is, that sounds difficult. Like Maybe when you think of Jesus, and maybe you haven't done a lot of reading on the Gospels, and maybe not brushed up on it recently, and so you mostly think, okay, to live like Jesus, is just kind of, you know, don't really be mad at people, and you know, be generally kind. But I want you to think about Jesus' actual life and some of the things the Bible tells us about it. Well, one would be, how did Jesus start his ministry? Well, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights out in the desert and then was tempted by the devil himself. It's a little bit more difficult than seminary. Like, just slightly more difficult than seminary. How did Jesus pray? Well, the Bible tells us that he not only prayed publicly and with his disciples, but regularly the Bible tells us Jesus got up in the morning and went out to a desolate place while it was still dark and prayed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest. I know we're in church and it feels weird. I will tell you, I sometimes have trouble getting up and having a fresh warm cup of coffee in my own kitchen to pray. I sometimes feel too tired. I sometimes find myself clicking on social media apps long before I speak out to the Lord and I, I'll tell you it's not a desolate place I'm not in the mountains I'm not in the desert and it's at 3 a.m. I don't know if I'm Christian I don't know if I've been renewed yet by th- 3 a.m. that's when Jesus was starting his morning prayers and I'm just giving you guys a few of Jesus's actions his life his affections Jesus rejected the kingship when they tried to make him king. He rejected the glory that man tried to give him. He said, I'm not interested in your glory. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus was constantly berated by the religious leaders of the day, and he never reacted. Like, I get upset in traffic. I get upset in the Chick-fil-A line, okay, if I picked the wrong one. You guys know what I'm talking about? You pick this one, and that one starts moving. I'm mad already. Jesus went through his entire life and was always righteously angry, never unrighteously angry. I mean, I could go on with this, but let me just simply put it like this. This is a lot of work if we're going to say we're called to pursue holiness. So the first thing that I want to talk about this morning is motivation for the task. Where are we going to find motivation? Like how are we going to pick up the shovel and start the labor? And then second, and maybe the most important, I'm going to have only two, but I think really important for us as a church Um where should we begin as a church? So those are two things, motivation and where should we begin. So let's start with motivation. And I think it's, it's apropos that we're in January. Okay, everybody's got, probably got, as a church we're fasting, so at least some of us are going to have some resolutions. But everyone kind of has resolutions in January, and this will resonate with you. Resolutions are difficult for a number of reasons. For one, human motivations always wax and wane. Like we are motivated to eat right, right after a huge meal that just made us feel lethargic. In that moment, we're motivated, it's time, you know? But we're less motivated at noon on the 10th day of our diet when we're staring at the same kale salad that we've eaten for like nine days, and we're kind of starting to think like, why am I so committed, you know? Or like you watch a documentary about sugar and how it's killing you. And they had really like like the piano music at the end, and they're showing you like this is your death slowly happening. And so you looked at your wife, or you looked at your husband, you're like, "We're done with sugar." And I mean, and you were at the height of motivation. You were ready. You know, you had already gone in, and you started realizing that like everything had sugar in it. But you were so motivated, you burned it. You even saw the smoke make the face of a demon as it was headed out. You know. But, like, you know, day four when you've now done what all of us do which is inflict this upon your children too and and they're they're angry and you're angry and you have a headache and you don't know why and you're starting to question like am i really dying from sugar like is it because i because i'm positive i was eating it for 30 years before this And yeah, I don't look as good in the mirror, but I don't feel like this, you know, whatever it may be. And so the motivations will, and you know, what's not happening. You're not having that documentary that's like, yes, you are dying. You know, that guy doesn't follow you around the voiceover guy. He doesn't follow you around in your moments and be like, if you don't eat the sugar, there's paradise for you. You know, you just feel it and you do something else. Also, we're just inherently lazy creatures. So when things are good or even decent, we have a hard time contriving motivations to change the status quo. It's like things don't have to be great for you to not be motivated. Things just have to be not bad. That's just who we are. So what can we do? Well, here's what we do, and humans have done this since the beginning of time. We contrive ways to manufacture motivation, okay? Let me give you the first example that's kind of funny and wild. We hire people to yell at us to work out more and harder and faster so that we'll actually do it. We pay them to be mean to us, to yell us, to call us at 5 o'clock in the morning, why are you late to the gym? And then they motivate you by reminding you of your excess BMI as you're doing that last push-up or, you know, screaming at you or whatever. Now, some of them are really motivating. They're really good good people. But then when you really think about it, you know, it's not something that I would like to hire, you know? I know some of you guys might be that too and thank God for you because if not, then I really might die, you know, like heart disease or something. But we hire people to motivate us from the outside. And then there's some of us, some of you, even listening to me right now, you're like, yeah, that's what the schlubs do. I'm my own physical trainer. Because you're type A. Okay? And so the other option is you tap into certain emotions, whether good or bad, and you are that trainer for yourself to discipline yourself, to motivate yourself. Um, and, And you guys usually are the physical trainers for other people because if you're more maybe like me, You know, we need people like you. My wife's very type A, and so there's only one thing between her and a goal. It's a decision. She has made it. She'll do that thing, you know, and I'm happy to have her around, but that's not how things work for me. But some of you may be that, and so, you know, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be a a, a good emotion. Bad emotions are good motivators too. Some people use avarice or greed, and it motivates them to work harder. You're a greedy person, so you work harder to get more money. Some people use vainglory as it because they desire to be wanted, and it can motivate them to eat less. If you ever wondered why there are mirrors in the gyms, it's not only to check your posture. I don't know if you guys know that or not. It's not only to make sure your back's straight on the squats. It's also because memberships, <laughs> analytically, they stay high when you see yourself, both for good or for ill, in the mirrors. Jealousy can motivate you to get up earlier in order to get that five-mile run-in before your friend who you share the Apple Watch with. You know what I mean? Now, here's the, here's the rub. The motivation for a goal is always going to impact the enjoyment of that goal, even if the goal is a good one. Because the, disip- the disposition of the heart at the starting line is always going to impact the enjoyment of the result of that race. I'm going to give you an example so this makes a little more sense. So jealousy as a motivator for fitness, let's say, may help you get fit. In fact, if it's very strong jealousy, I can almost guarantee you, you'll see health results. The problem is, it's only going to inflame the underlying issue of the heart. So even the enjoyment of that result of being fit will be diluted with the vice of jealousy. It'll look something like this when you look at yourself in the mirror after you know experiencing this success of this goal of being fit you'll start by saying something like man i look beautiful in this dress quickly it will turn to more beautiful than she does or you might say man i finally hit my 8 mile mark and then quickly it'll turn to and him only 7 Because you never addressed, in fact, you only inflamed the jealousy that was at the root of the motivation. And we got to be careful about this. I'm picking on, you know, some some of you people are like, why is he always talking about gym people? It's like, well, you know, I, I don't visit very often, you know, so it's easy. But this can happen, and more damagingly, to spiritual aims. It's what the Pharisees did, and they struggled greatly from it. Their motivations were off about their righteousness. It wasn't that they didn't meet their goals in their righteousness. It's that they received mutated fruit because the starting line was mutated. So whether we have others do it for us or we tap into it ourselves, the choice is not that. The motivation choice is, will we be motivated by heavenly means or earthly means? We have people in our lives that can be coaches. I made fun of physical trainers. We need people in our lives that are cheering us on, challenging us, telling us what we don't want to hear, calling us at the five o'clock in the morning saying, get up, you know. The question is, is it heavenly means or earthly means that they use to motivate? And this is where I think as Christians, we have to resolve to do some battle because we've abandoned this battlefront. We swallowed a single lie that I think is a devastating one for the pursuit of holiness. And that is that the only reason Christians pursue holiness is out of shame and guilt. Here's the thing. There's only one problem. The Bible never says that. The Bible says a lot about shame. The Bible says a lot about guilt. The Bible says that there's even times where shame is well-placed and guilt is well-placed, but it never says that the motivation for pursuit of God is shame and guilt, and that that's the primary thing that Christianity offers is basically that if you feel bad enough, you won't do these things. That's not what the Bible tells us. There's a glorious way that we have to recover together, and it's this. We need to rediscover a vision of God's holiness, the beauty of God's holiness. And in so doing, what will be unpacked or what will be unlocked for us is the singular motivation that is the most powerful in the world, namely love. You can be motivated, don't kid yourself, from fear, from shame, from guilt. They are motivators. But remember, that which motivates you is the fruit that you'll receive. It's a sowing and reaping principle. If you have been motivated through fear, you will, you will maintain a harvest that has fear included. But if you are motivated through love, then you will maintain the harvest with love included. Now, in light of that, I want to read Isaiah 6. So let's go there and let's read Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called to another, and he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled or full of his glory. This is written by Isaiah, who's a prophet in the time of a king named King Uzziah. He had reigned for 53 years, and King Uzziah, the Bible tells us, was a righteous king, a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He ruled over Judah. There's not many of these, so we should take take note. A lot of kings, okay, after King Solomon, very few did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. King Uzziah did. There was a lot of prosperity and peace during his reign, but the Bible records that at the end of his reign, he walked into the temple, and through pride and vanity, he grabbed the incense from the altar, and he began to try to take the priest's job, remember Saul did this in the Old Testament, and bring the incense to the, the altar himself. The Bible records 80 priests went up into the temple, and they withstood the king and said, you can't do this, it's wrong, you need to get out of here. And King Uzziah is so angry, he begins to get ready to lash out and call his guards against the priests, and leprosy springs forward onto his forehead. And everybody stands aghast because they know what this means. It means that the Lord had judged him immediately. He runs out of the temple and he lives the rest of his life before his death in isolation because lepers were sent outside of the city because no one wanted to catch the leprosy. What's the lesson here? Well, there's much to be said, but the Bible records here that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. Uzziah can't be defined only by what happened at the end of his life, although it was a grave sin and error. I think that one thing to mention is that when our hopes play, that are placed in man, any other king apart from King Jesus, finally die, our vision is finally cleared this this fast for us as a church, our elders, our prayer was, God would you choke out any desire or hope that we have in man through this fast so that we can have a vision that is revived to truly see the glory of the Lord high and lifted up. That's what happens here. It's the king who actually led pretty well for 53 years a pretty long time. In fact, I'd venture to say many of you in the room are not even 50 50 years old. Your whole life, you got this guy ruling and reigning, you'd see a lot of prosperity. It's only when he dies that Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, the true king of glory. That's it's why we read Psalm 24 this morning. Who is the king of glory? Well, it's not any of the kings of old. It's King Jesus. And here we see Isaiah describing for us what does the holiness of God look like? Because I want you to notice, of all the character attributes that the angels could have chosen to sing to God, and there are many, they choose holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And how does Isaiah describe that holy experience? Well, he says the train of God's robe, the king's robe, fills the temple. If you've ever seen a coronation, or this is a long time ago now, but when Queen Elizabeth was married, her long bridal train its massive, by the way. You had to have a lot of people carrying this thing. I love that Isaiah says the train of God's robe fills up the whole temple. It's meant to be his glory. You know, it's how, how righteous is he? How worthy is he? How glorious is he? The whole temple's filled with it. You know, that's what Isaiah says. And then he says something in, in the verses following that I've focused on. And the reason that I left them out is because I also want to focus on another side to God's holiness that's missed. And if we miss it, you miss almost everything. You see, Isaiah goes on to say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm in a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king and I'm undone. And an angel shows up and he presses the coal of the altar to the lips of Isaiah and he cleanses him and says, now you can come into the presence of the king. And you guys, if you've been a member at Providence for a long time, you've heard me say, no one comes into the presence of God recognizing who he is and his holiness and doesn't fall before his face humbled. Have you heard that from me before? And this is 100% true. I'm not retracting. (laughs) That's fact. But there's another side. And what is that side? There's something about the holiness of God that not only humbles us, but makes us never want to leave his presence. Draws us. It's very counterintuitive. Peter says, depart from me. I am a man of iniquity. I have guilty hands. Jesus, get out of my boat. But you know what else he did? He followed Jesus around the rest of his life. There's something about being in the presence of the holiness of God that simultaneously humbles you and and makes you say, if I could never be anywhere else but his presence right now, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I never want to leave it. It's like the transfiguration when they all fall before their face, but then they don't want to really go down the mountain. What does Peter say? Build some tabernacles here. We'll stick around. I want to read to you a few passages from the Old and New Testament. I want you to think about how the saints of old viewed God's holiness and presence. Psalm 8, verse 1. This is David. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, royal, holy is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 27, verse 4, this is David again. Think about that the king has, can do anything that he wants. He can get all of his desires. He's the king after all. So what does King David desire? Well, verse 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The saints of old talked about God and his beauty, his majesty, like being before a great mountain range and vista that you cannot express it humbles you but makes you want to build a house you know it kind of takes your breath away and then you start thinking about how can I stay here and see it all the time the beauty of the Lord see when we talk about holiness we mostly talk about the things that we can't do because God said when the saints of old talked about the holiness of God they talked about such a treasure that if they could just be in its presence and be made like it a little bit it'd be the best possible scenario for their life I'll keep going. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. This is Paul the Apostle. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealot of zealots. I had more human accolades than any other religious teacher. And then he says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss, rubbish, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him, Paul says. And the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When I read that, I think, Paul, if you don't know him, if you're not found in him, what does that mean about me? Anybody else? If Paul's saying, I just want to know him, I'm like, well, I think you do know him. I hope you know him. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. No, Paul's talking about a hunger that existed in him, a pursuit of God to know Jesus. He was willing to share in suffering because it meant that he could know Jesus more intimately in and through it. He, He had been in the presence of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he wanted that. He wanted to follow that king. And he saw holiness not as I can't do these things and I got to restrict these things in order to please God. No, he saw it as this is the invitation into this glory, this beauty, this wonder. Jonathan Edwards, leader of the Great Awakening, said, Holiness is a most beautiful and a lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions from their childhood about holiness as if it were melancholy or morose. Or a sour, unpleasant thing. He says, But there is nothing in it but that which is sweet and ravishingly lovely. Tis the highest beauty and amiableness. Vast above all other beauties, tis divine beauty. That's a vision of holiness. That's the vision of holiness the Bible has for us. Not guilt and shame will make you holy. Oh, no. Holiness is an invitation into the truest sense of life. Like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were that all of us know we wish we could get back to. That's what being in the presence of God is like, this invitation into true life. I want to read to you. You might be thinking I'm going overboard with that. Let me read to you 2 Peter 1, verses 3-4. through This is what Peter says about holiness. Work with me. These are big words. We're all going to get it together. His divine power is granted to us. His divine power is Christ's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness that's good news our pursuit of godliness will not have to rely upon our efforts alone but he has given everything we need that will pertain to it by his power so it's not on our power we're going to be pursuing righteousness he's going to give us power let's keep going through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellency by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises ah this is key God gave us promises. Why? Well, here he's going to tell you. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's important. What in the world does that mean? Peter is telling us the promises of God for us are meant that we would not be mere observers of God's holiness and nature but that we would be partakers in the divine nature itself. Are you hearing me? This is no small thing. (laughs) He's saying we're not just going to see God's glory. We're going to partake in God's glory. There are passages in the Bible that you would blush at if you really read them for what they're saying. God intends to share his glory with you. There's one where Jesus says he will bring you up and seat you next to him on his throne. Unfathomable stuff is what that is. We're meant to be partakers. When Christ calls us to return to him and be holy as he is holy, we have to keep this vision in mind. We are called to be partakers in that very self-same holiness that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in. You and I. That's his intention. You're not merely given a command to obey God and keep his commandments. You've been given a privilege to pursue God and a promise to find him. Listen to me. God gave you the privilege to chase after him and then promised you, when you do, you'll find me. Is that not insane? That's a wonderful thing. You're starting like the Easter egg, hunt and promised that you'll get the best Easter egg. If you just start. And we think of holiness mostly that God, like the serpent told us, is holding out on us all the good things and we just gotta, well, you have to do it so I don't feel guilty. No, he's saying, I'll give you the greatest things, the things you really desire, if you just start. To experience the blessings at His right hand, we've been given the Spirit of God within us to empower us to walk as Jesus walked. We've been given the Word of God before us to guide us in all truth, the grace of God upon us to shield us from condemnation. All of the promises of God are currently being leveraged for you and I to be partakers of the self same divine nature that all of the saints of old were wondered by. C.S. Lewis would go on to say something to the effect of if you and I were to see where, what plans God has for how we will look when we see him face to face, you would be tempted to fall down and worship your neighbor if you saw him as he will be because of the glory that God intends for you and me. You ever wondered why Paul and Silas would show up to islands and people would just fall down and start worshiping them? Just this foretaste of what's coming in glory. Of course, Paul and Silas knew like, whoa, we're just dudes like you, you know, The same thing happens in every single one of the apocalyptic literature when the angels show up and all the people fall down and the angels go, whoa, don't bow down to me. I'm just a reflection of the king. And the Bible says a call to holiness is a call to partake in that source, the sun, not the moon. Moon, ball of dust reflecting the sun. The sun is this massive, glorious energy ball. Okay, I want you to understand that's meant for you and me to just get a glimpse of what we mean when we think of God's glory. Okay, so very simply, the way of holiness, I want us to get this out of our minds forever, is not dreary and drab. (laughs) Please, if you don't leave out of here with anything else, God's call to, especially young people, the calling to follow Jesus is a calling to the greatest adventure you could ever imagine. It's the real, not the fake. It's the true, not the false. C.S. Lewis said, we don't understand what the offer of God is when he says, come out to have a holiday at the sea because we're, we're busy with our mud pies in the slum. We're, we're swimming in our pond in our backyard. Someone invites you to the Mykonos Islands and you say, don't worry. No, I don't really need that. I like my pond scum. The invitation to follow Jesus is this overwhelmingly great gift. And we think of it more like, oh, man, you know what I really want to do is, you know, Eat too much food on Friday night and maybe have too many drinks with my buddies, and then wake up regretting it. Now I'll choose that over the No, we're not understanding what the invitation is. It's real life. Okay. Now finally, what's the starting line for us? And maybe this might be more important than anything for, for you and I. Number one holiness is not a call to merely obey. It's a call first to love. First John Chapter 5, verse 3. Listen to what John tells us. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm going to read that again. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The best way to understand this passage is to think of maybe early falling in love and no one had to remind you that you had to get, well, I'll just speak for myself. No one had to remind me. My wife and I have been together for 20 years this year. And you know, we, were, we were together very young, high school sweethearts. But no one had to remind me to get flowers for her on Valentine's Day. At the time, um, I had plans. I had plans. I thought about it. Weird plans. Like, you know, scavenger hunt weirdness, like, you know, like young men writing poetry weirdness. That's what I was doing. And I know that if you're a man in here, and you, you know, maybe you're an older man in here, you and I both know that it's really tough over time not to end up, you know, on, in February driving, I got to go to Kroger and find that tent, you know, like I, I missed it. And we all know, you know, I know there's young people in here and you just squeeze your girlfriend's hand, you're like, not me, sweetheart. I am King Arthur, you know, um, and I get it and I hope that you are, but you know, I'll be there for marital counseling in about 10 years. I'm just kidding. That was a joke and I don't want to squelch your love. All right. Here's what I will say. The love that God's calling us to is that that love continue to be fanned into flame so that I don't like, for instance, if I showed up on Valentine's Day this year tomorrow, and she's not here, so I'll say it. If I show up, I said, "Baby." It's really hard for me to do this. I didn't want to do it at all. So tough, so expensive. Here's your flowers. And then I said something like, you got to thank you or any encouragement for me? Like, you know, what do you think? Like, you're not going to give me anything? This is often unw- unwittingly how we treat our relationship with the Lord. It's like, do you not know that I fasted all January? I mean, I didn't even get on Facebook for a month. Any encouragement here? Blessings? You know, job? Increase? What up? You know, I need something. This is how we operate. As though that were pleasing to the Lord. When all we're doing is confessing that it's just so burdensome to be in his presence. So burdensome, you know, it'd have to set aside time. But when love is increased, no one has to tell you. Just when when the love is fanned into flame, you just pursue it. Now, I don't want to discourage you. What I want to say is, isn't God a gracious and loving God that he receives even our most humble and meager of offerings, even the ones that are heartless? You know, at times I've come in on Sunday mornings, maybe I'm not preaching, Ty's getting up and preaching, you know, and I find myself like my mind's drifting away during worship, thinking about what I'm going to eat or sad about the Texans losing. I know it's depressing. And the Lord even receives what little I offer that day. But what I'm saying is that if the starting line be love, obedience always follows love because it follows the heart. So what is the practical? Do everything to fan into flame your love for God and, and to eliminate what dulls your heart towards him. But oftentimes what we do when we think of holiness is only what we should cut out of our lives. And we forget what we ought to add into our lives So it's only about restriction, which is why we always think about the guilt and shame motivators, never the love and joy, because we don't replace it with the things that cause us to have our affection stirred for Jesus. So that's number one, is fan into flame love. And the second one is, I think perhaps maybe the most important. Pursuing holiness apart from grace is a fool's errand. If you and I try to pursue holiness without relying on the grace of God, our attempts will always be frustrating, disappointing, and even damaging to ourselves and others. We will either become like the Pharisees whose pursuit of holiness, at least at some level from the outside, looked successful, but it ended quickly and terminated to policing everyone else and not being very self-aware. You guys have always experienced this, right? You maybe pursue holiness for a month. You feel, you feel like you've gotten really good at it, so it quickly turns to you making sure everybody else gets good at it. You know what I mean? In, in, in fleshly terms, this is like the guy who starts a diet a month later is telling you about what you're eating when he just ate with you like a month ago at that place. You know what I mean? And you're like, hey, like, and he's like, oh, I wouldn't really eat that. I'm like, what do, what do you mean you wouldn't eat that? It's like, well, you know, it's got all sorts of polysaturated, seed oils in it you know whatever it may be but he just was with you at Burger King like a week ago you know this is what the Pharisees had done or secondarily we end up hardened like the rich young ruler the rich young ruler tells Jesus I kept the commandments from my youth but he could not lay down his one vice or we end up like the thief on the cross you guys remember not the one who received Jesus I'm talking about the other one you remember him All he had to say was railing things at Christ and the other guy? Well, how do we end up like that? Because unable to shake condemnation to the very end, you end up being a person that condemns everybody else around you. If you don't understand grace, you will only see the commands of God as massively burdensome and you will ultimately loathe everyone, including God. Because you don't understand grace. And so this week, here's my... I don't know, we can call it an application point rather than like homework assignment, but this is simply put, I want you to consider this. What should the starting line of pursuing holiness for us be? Well, I want you to extend grace this week lavishly, and I want you to start with forgiveness, and I want you to start in your home. I want you to forgive your husband. If you've been married for longer, I'm speaking to you more, not less. You know why? You've had more time to grow bitter. I want you to forgive your wife. I want you to forgive your kids. I want you to forgive your mother. I want you to forgive your father. You might say, well, they're passed away. Still so. Maybe even more important so. I want you to forgive your siblings, your friends, hear me, your enemies. I want you to forgive your leaders who have failed you or fallen short or hurt you or disappointed you. I want you to forgive your brothers and sisters who have left you out. And You might say, well, why? how does this have anything to do with Holiness. I want to read to you Luke 6, verse 37 through 38. Very misstated passage of verse 38. I'm giving you the, f- the context of verse 38 so you understand it. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Here's the passage that's always misstated about financial giving. It's not about financial giving. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, It will be measured back to you. What is it that you're giving? Grace. Forgiveness, not condemnation, not judgment. See, both of those work. If, If we give judgment and condemnation, it'll be measured back. But the grace that's measured by us will be given back to us. Jesus tells us this in the inverse when he says, if you withhold forgiveness from your brother, it'll be withheld from you. But the positive is true, too. When we give overwhelming grace, it pours out on our lap. Hear me, friends. What do you need to pursue holiness more than anything? It isn't resolve. It isn't drive. It isn't discipline. It's grace. And so grace dispensed freely results in grace received freely. And if I had to guess, because we're human, not because I know something, you know, secret, Grudges and unforgiveness that exist within this room are harboring pain and suffering with no outlet. And forgiveness is the thing that will unclog your heart. Now you might say, court, how can I do it? Because I know some of you, this is no small thing. You've really been hurt in ways that I don't even know. And so you're like, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know what I've gone through. And here's what I'll tell you. The only way is by understanding this next passage that I'm about to read, Romans 5, verses 1 through 8. This is my last scripture. It should be put up behind me. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ah, the love of God. How do we know that God loves us, that he's gracious to us? Here it is. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to do this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ah, here is the heart of the strength to forgive. The beauty of God's holiness is manifested most prominently in the cross of Christ. Jesus was willing to die, not for the righteous, but for sinners like me, wretches like me. Who is it that I can withhold grace from now in my life? If Christ looked down upon me in my wretched state, and he did not only pity me, he loved me. He didn't only tolerate me, he loved me. He didn't only accept my existence, he loved me. He died for me. Jesus on the cross cried out for forgiveness towards those who did not ask for it. And so the wonder of the gospel is that the perfect, holy, majestic, sinless one in whom sin never resided took sin on his shoulders and from undiluted, holy love laid down his life for us. And so this morning, the motivation is simple. You are loved by God. A holy, righteous, perfect unstained, almighty God who humbles everyone in his presence, stooped down from his throne and replaced you on the cross. He loves you. Let me pray.